0: A Lockheed L-1011 TriStar is on its way to Los Angeles when disaster hits in Dallas. How did Delta Airlines Flight 191 crash just short of the runway at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. I'm Christy.
0: And, and I Brendan's here. Introduce myself again. <laughs> oh come on! You can introduce yourself at this point. Anyways, Brendan's here. Hello.
1: <laughs> again, he's bored. He's consistently it's good bored. To be here. That's great. We're we're happy to have you. A- and he is fluent on weather stuff, or should be.
2: Yes, I am mostly fluent on, according to my exam. Cool. <laughs> according to my. I think I missed. I don't know what I missed though. So.
3: So, what What are we... we...
2: What are we... Sorry. How dare you! I was waiting for somebody to say it. Sorry, I got... I I didn't mean to jump on you, but I got... There was awkward silence.
3: So, what are we covering today,
0: Nick? Okay. (laughs) Today, we're covering Delta Flight 191.
1: Which a lot of you have probably been waiting for since we've been doing a series on weather phenomena.
0: Yeah. And a lot of aviationers went, (gasps) I know that one! Yeah.
3: Brendan did. I don't know... I think i know this one but i don't remember it
0: okay
2: it was a there's a plane <laughs> and then it crashed
3: thanks. wow thanks for that i totally needed that explanation oh, man
2: there we go again is that what we're about i heard this was your 40th episode i think you would have learned by now do you think. would
3: think so i still think i'm on the wrong podcast <laughs> <laughs>
0: took place on august 2nd of 1985 hey 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 that is
3: two that birthdays is, here yeah that's me and brendan's birthday yeah it's
0: 10 years before my birthday
3: and, and uh 11. 11 years before
0: mine so yeah <laughs> <laughs> but still it's, it
3: was the day of our birthday
0: it's, it's, it's on august 2nd so so good this will be a, a birthday crash you're welcome next a week. plane crash Yay. on your birthday <laughs> next
3: week's
1: All my birthday crash
0: died. yeah next week we do one for your birthday this was a Lockheed L-1011 300 Tristar. Tristar for three engines. Was the star for? I don't know. <laughs> it was. It was. It deserved a gold star.
2: Oh, good for the Tristar.
0: Yeah, it was actually a really good airplane. It's one of my favorites in history. It's good. It was good looking. It was actually. I think it was designed with a little bit of class. It was a nice airplane. The flight was to be from Fort Lauderdale to LAX with a stopover at Dallas Fort Worth International Airport. The captain for this flight, who would be the pilot not flying or the pilot monitoring, was Edward Connors. He was 57 years old, and he is by far and away the most experienced pilot we've ever had on this podcast at 29,300 hours total flight time.
1: Hot
3: dang.
0: Of which 3,000 were on the TriStar.
3: I feel like we've said that before with many pilots.
0: We have, but this one, like, I don't think you understand. He is, like, way above.
1: Our last record was 25,000.
0: Something like that. Very, very experienced. The first officer, or pilot flying in this case, was Rudolph Price Jr. He was 42 years old. He had 6,500 hours total, of which 1,200 hours were on the Tristar. The flight engineer was Nicholas Nasik. He was 43 years old. He had 6,500 hours total and 4,500 hours on the Tristar. So he actually had the most hours on the Tristar out of everybody.
3: That tends to be the case, I find, with flight engineers.
0: Well, yeah, when they fly one type of airplane, they usually stick to
3: it. And then they also just get more flight hours, period. I feel like once you're a, f- a flight engineer, if you don't want to go past that, you just stay a flight engineer.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think by this time, already in the 80s, probably a lot of flight engineers started realizing those jobs aren't going to exist in the not-so-distant future. and phased out. Yeah, within about the next 10 years, those jobs really kind of went away as new airplanes came. And so I think a lot of them stuck to their guns on whatever airplane they were already on. And that's how they got so many hours on the airplanes. There were 11 crew members and 152 passengers on this flight. The flight departed Fort Lauderdale at 3.10 p.m. Eastern Time without issues, and it was on an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan. The dispatch documents included for the flight included weather information for the terminal area of Dallas-Fort Worth, which stated that there was a possibility of widely scattered thunderstorms becoming isolated by 8 p.m. Central Time. From this point on, all times will be Central Time. The flight crew had reviewed this data and had not called Delta's Weather Center in Atlanta for additional information on weather. So they were just making their their decisions as they went, basically. The flight was uneventful until they passed New Orleans, where there was a line of thunderstorms along the Gulf Coast that was intensifying. You might remember New Orleans was in our last one. The flight crew elected to change their route to the more northerly Blue Ridge arrival route to avoid these storms. The change caused a 10 to 15-minute delay at Texarkana, at the Texarkana Vortec, for arrival sequencing. So they did a hold over Texarkana at 5:35 p.m. and 26 seconds. The crew retrieved the ATIS information for Dallas Fort Worth, which was Romeo, and included scattered clouds at 6,000 feet and 12,000 feet, visibility of 10 nautical miles, winds calm, and they were, had visual approaches in use with an altimeter of 299 9, or 2. So literally, like, perfect Perfect day. day. Yep, spot-on perfect day. 2992 is, like, as good as it gets.
2: Standard pressure.
0: Standard pressure. At 5.35 p.m. and 33 seconds, the flight was cleared from the hold and was given instructions to descend. They were to be landing on runway 17 left at Dallas-Fort Worth. At 5.43 p.m. and 45 seconds, about 10 minutes later, the Air Route Traffic Control Center cleared the flight to descend to 10,000 feet, and gave the flight a heading of 250 to join the Blue Ridge 010 radial inbound, and said, quote, We have a good area there to go through, end quote. The captain replied that he was looking at a, quote, pretty good size weather cell that was at a heading of 255, and, quote, I'd rather not go through it. I'd rather go around it one way or the other, end quote.
3: That's probably a good idea. Yeah. And, in general.
0: And I'll throw in in advance that... <sighs> A lot of other flight crew members that had flown with this captain had stated that he was very aware, he was a very good and meticulous pilot, and if there were storms, he was always conscious to avoid them. ATC allowed this and gave them another heading, instructing that they would then turn toward the Blue Ridge 01 radial at some point. 010, radial. At 546 p.m. and 50 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared 191 direct to Blue Ridge and to descend to 9,000 feet, to which they acknowledged. At 5.48 p.m. and 22 seconds, the captain told the first officer, quote, You're in good shape. I'm glad we didn't have to go through that mess. I thought for sure we, he was going to send us through it, End quote. At 5.51 p.m. and 28 seconds, air traffic control transmitted an all-aircraft message received by Flight 191, which stated in part, quote, There's a little rain shower just north of the airport, and they're starting to make ILS approaches, or instrument landing system approaches. Tune up 109.1 for 1-7 one left. At 5.59 p.m. and 47 seconds... Okay, I should clarify. 109.1 is the ILS nav frequency. frequency. So you need a frequency for the airplane to basically listen to for the glide slope. So they have to tune up that radio frequency for the ILS for 1-7 left.
3: So they can catch it and get to the runway.
0: Correct. At 5.59 p.m. and 47 seconds, the first officer stated, We're going to get our airplane washed.
3: Which means they're going through rain.
0: Yep. I don't think that's an appropriate time to go through a car wash. A car wash? No, not usually.
1: Oh, dear lord.
0: <laughs> on, on approach? I think it caught the captain off guard, too, because he went, What? And the first officer had to repeat himself. Aha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I see. At 5.59 and 54 seconds, the captain switched the air traffic control frequency and contacted the, control ta- the controller to inform them that they were at 5,000 feet and descending. At 6 p.m. and 36 seconds, ATC asked an American Airlines flight that was on the approach if they could see the airport, to which they replied, quote, As soon as we break out of the rain shower we will, end quote. The controller told the flight that they were four nautical miles from the outer marker on the approach and to join the ILS at 2,300 feet or above. All of this was heard by Flight 191.
3: Were they? I'm sorry, I miss. I I kind of miss that. Were they talking to 191 or? They were, were talking they to another.
0: They were talking to an American Airlines flight.
3: Were they behind or in front of 191? Behind. Behind. Mm-hmm. So 191 had already passed the outer marker.
0: No, sorry. 191 is behind this other airplane. Oh, oh,
3: oh, oh. A whoa, whoa, whoa. long ways
0: behind this other airplane, actually. Okay,
3: so they haven't reached the outer marker yet. No,
0: but okay. point is, they heard this.
3: So they knew that they would get some, it in- weather coming in.
0: Yes. At 6 p.m. and 51 seconds, air traffic control asked Flight 191 to reduce their airspeed to 170 knots and to turn to uh, turn left to 270, which was acknowledged. They were then sequenced in behind a landing Learjet on 17 left. At 6.02 p.m. and 35 seconds, ATC told Flight 191 that they were 6 nautical miles from the outer marker and requested that they turn to 180 to intercept the localizer at or above 2300 feet. And stated that they were cleared for the ILS approach to 17 left, to which the flight crew also acknowledged. At 6:03 p.m. and three seconds, the approach controller requested that 191 reduce their speed again to 160 knots. At 6:03 p.m. and 30 seconds, he broadcast, quote, "And we're getting some variable winds out there to a shower out there north end of Dallas Fort Worth," which was heard by flight 191. At 6:03 p.m. and 46 seconds, air traffic control asked that 191 slow again, this time to 150 knots, and to contact the Dallas-Fort Worth tower. So you can tell they're slowing them down a lot because they're catching up on the Learjet, which is a small corporate jet. The captain switched to the tower frequency and stated, "Tower Delta 191, heavy out here in the rain. Feels good." That is what he said. The tower cleared them to land and informed them that, quote, "Wind 090 at five, gust 15." At 6.04 p.m. and 7 seconds, the first officer called for the before-landing checklist. The crew confirmed that the landing gear was down and that the flaps were at 3-3, or 33 degrees, which is typical for landing on that airplane.
1: There's a lot of threes with that plane.
0: Yes. At 6.04 p.m. and 18 seconds, the first officer said, Lightning coming out of that one, which he pointed out to the captain as being straight ahead of them. 191 continued descending on the final approach course. At 6.05 p.m. and 5 seconds, the captain called out 1,000 feet. At 6.05 p.m. and 19 seconds, the captain told the first officer to to watch his airspeed as heavy rain began. At 6.05 p.m. and 21 seconds, the captain warned the first officer, quote, You're going to lose it all of a sudden. There it is, end quote. So in other words, his airspeed was second, suddenly going to drop out from underneath him.
3: So he, the captain knew what was going to happen?
0: The captain was yes. aware.
3: So he was like, this is a phenomena that... He knew he it happened before.
0: Flying yep. into it, he was pretty aware so of what was So he was going like,
3: on. hey, just so you know.
0: Yep. At 6.05 p.m. and 26 seconds, so five seconds later, the captain stated, push it up, push it way up, referring to the throttle. The engines then increased heavily in RPM as the thrust was pushed to nearly full power. At 6.05 p.m. and 44 seconds, the ground proximity warning system, or GPWS, began to sound whoop, whoop, pull up, whoop, whoop, pull
1: up. Does your notes just say pull up or...
0: No, it says whoop whoop. Oh, that's
1: <laughs> and it awesome. said it in
0: the report. In the report, it said whoop whoop pull up. Were they also told not to think? No, I did not hear that one. Oh. It didn't say that that got that one. Don't think. Don't think. Don't think. Don't think. If you haven't figured it out, it means don't, don't think. sink.
1: It also means you haven't been here long enough. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. You should go back a few episodes.
0: <laughs> yeah. The captain commanded takeoff, off go around power or toga.
3: I they... wondered what that stood for. Take off go around. Take off, go around. That makes perfect sense to me, and it's, it makes me laugh that it's Toga.
0: It's written out Toga, but it's actually T O slash G A
1: on airplanes. Ah, there's a slash, and
0: it's supposed to be take off, go around.
1: I saw that, and I was like, I don't have time or reason to go look that up right now.
0: It's fine. It's yeah, it's take off, go around power, which is basically full power, and they already were there. By the way.
1: Oh well, not a <laughs> lot of good.
0: At six o five p.m. and forty eight seconds, and forty nine seconds, two more each. Uh, GPWS alert sounded, so more whoop whoop pulled up, that's all.
3: There's stuff below you.
0: Yes. The airplane then landed briefly in a field and then lifted off again, prompting the takeoff horn to sound. At 6.05 p.m. and 56 seconds, air traffic control- the air traffic controller in the tower spotted the plane and frantically called for them to go around.
3: No, really? you don't say. Yep.
0: Witnesses near Highway 114 North stated that they saw the airplane emerge from the storm about one and a quarter nautical miles from the end of the runway, and then it struck a car with one of the engines, the the left engine, struck a car that was traveling on the highway. The controller stated that when he saw the airplane emerge from the storm, it appeared to be in a straight and level attitude rather than a nose-up attitude like he was used to seeing from years of work at DFW. Witnesses said that they saw fire near the wing route on the left side after it had struck the car on the highway. Uh Uh-oh. The airplane was then witnessed rolling to the left, and the left wing struck the ground first, and then the fuselage rotated counterclockwise, followed by the cockpit area striking a very large water tank. Oh. A large explosion and a wall of fire occurred. The crash occurred at 6.05 p.m. and 52 seconds.
3: Wait, so did you say that they landed in a field and then they tried to take off again? They didn't just take take off off again. again. They bounced off the field. Oh, they bounced.
0: Yes, but they listed it as having landed in the field and lifted off again.
3: Okay, so in reality, they just went, boing!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Basically, essentially.
3: Okay. Because landing, I would be like, why didn't they just stay in the field?
0: (laughs) You'd think. That Learjet ahead of them managed to land, however.
3: That's interesting, since the Learjet is considerably smaller.
0: We'll get into that later. 134 people on the plane perished and one person in the car. 27 people and one rescue worker were injured. Two passengers were completely uninjured. How I know, the tail section was then seen sliding backwards away from the fireball, where it then came to rest on its left side with the tail pointing south. The wind then blew the tail section back upright.
3: That's how bad the wind was.
0: Yes, it actually. This is what witnesses saw immediately after the crash. Great. It blew upright with people still sitting in the seats.
3: That's That's crazy. I that would scare the living blood of me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I tried.
0: The tail section was the only part of the fuselage that was not completely destroyed.
3: So the tail section meaning there was an actual part of the back of the plane where people were sitting?
0: So it was basically everything aft of the the wing route. Yes, the last ten rows.
3: That would scare the... Okay.
0: It was everything aft of the the wing route, basically. Can you imagine
3: being that person? That would be horrifying. No.
1: One of the passengers who survived said he looked at the sky... He saw it raining, he went to go help some of the other survivors, and then the rain stopped. That's crazy.
0: One car, a lamppost, and two water tanks were destroyed in the crash. Some metal from the engine cowling was found where the completely destroyed car was, on the highway. And some metal from the car, conversely, was found in the inlet of the left engine.
1: That car's destroyed!
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, William Mayberry was, was a new arrival to North Texas. Ah! <gasps> relocating from Vicksburg, Mississippi. You sent me this, right? Yes. Is that, that what you sent me? That is what I just sent This you.
3: will be on the website. Oh my gosh, that's horrifying. Needless
0: to say, there wasn't anything left.
3: Uh, yeah, I would, uh, yeah.
0: Two tire tracks were found on the highway from the L-1011. So I they mean,
3: had their gear down, which they were we looking to land, so. Yes.
0: It was at that point, as they were flying over the highway, that the airplane began to break apart. <gasps> oh my gosh. You can see that the airplane was actually... Relatively good good portion of it, yeah. In the air disaster episode, they interviewed a passenger, Chris Meyer, who was one of the survivors, and he was uh, upset with his original seat, which was in row 15.
3: So farther up.
0: And he was moved to row 40 because he didn't want to sit in row 15 because he wanted to be in the smoking section.
3: Which, oh. was at the, which
0: was at the rear of the airplane.
3: Because they still had smoking on planes at that time. Yep, they
0: actually depicted him as smoking in the cabin as they were as in the episode.
3: Interesting.
0: Yeah, we, so,
1: we were watching this with my uncle, actually. And mm-hmm. he's like, what is he doing? I'm like, it was still legal.
0: But oh. anyways, he was moved all the way to, the, to row 40 where he could smoke.
1: Also and survived. Also mm-hmm. on board were, was an IBM executive named Don Estridge, and his wife.
0: They were up toward first class.
1: Probably, Did they yeah. survive? No. Uh, no. Oh. No one in
0: first class. But... Nobody forward yeah. of row 40, well, actually, that's not true, but uh, very few people forward of row 40 survived. The airplane also, I can say that the airplane also didn't go into the water tank uh, like dead straight as an arrow. Witnesses say the airplane was heavily yawed to the right, so the airplane was flying sideways.
2: I uh, got sideswiped.
3: Whoa! They were so close to the runway. Yes. They were
1: ridiculously close to the runway. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay, we are just looking stuff. So, okay. So NTSB investigators began examining the wreckage for mechanical failures, but we're in the middle of a series, so we know it's not that. So we're gonna bypass it. Yeah, because it was it wasn't mechanical, mechanical. Fa- failure.
0: To be fair, they pretty much looked right over that in
1: in the episode in as the, well
0: in the air disaster episode too. Like they were like, mm, no mechanical problems. Way more to tell you about this.
1: So whether it is, one of the investigators' initial theories might sound vaguely familiar. Witnesses in the area, as well as flight crew of other flights, both in the air and on the ground, noted that there was lightning present. So investigators wondered if lightning downed the plane specifically like in Pan Am 214, which we covered in episode 30. Alas, however, the static wicks on Flight 191 did not show any signs of the indicative damage that would have shown on a lightning strike. So there goes that theory. Investigators did momentarily question the somewhat low speed of 150 knots during turbulent weather, but interviews with other L-1011 pilots confirmed that this was a landable speed, and if the first officer didn't think so, he could have asked ATC for a higher speed. But he was also confident in that speed, and he had, in fact, helped rewrite the operating manual of the L-1011, so his credibility was sound, needless to say.
3: remind me, when did they have that as their speed? Was it on descent or was it before that point the one five zero yeah
0: it was to be that whole point they were that was the last speed they were given for their approach
3: oh so that was the speed that they were told to land at
0: that was the speed they were told to maintain until their
3: their
1: final touchdown correct basically yeah. okay and that was to maintain distance with the learjet which actually they didn't maintain distance with that learjet correct they didn't they did go below minimums but they found that not to be a factor in this accident yep. okay somewhat obviously so investigators reviewed other weather data from Dallas-Fort Worth. At 5.52, the Stephen or Stephenville radar showed a level one storm six miles northeast from the end of runway 17 left, and it was just lightly raining. The radar specialist left to attend to other duties and came back eight minutes later to find a level four storm. Wait, wait. He left his station. To attend to other duties. And then came back, and no. then there was a big storm. Th- it went from level one to level four in eight minutes.
3: Which is why you probably shouldn't have someone leave their uh, station there, huh? He went for lunch. Was this no. The, you're talking about... The, no. Oh,
0: okay. Never mind. He had other duties. Other yes. duties. Other that's, duties.
1: That's all it says. Yeah. We'll get into a, a
0: far more ridiculous situation in a bit.
1: Oh, good. <laughs> and four minutes later, he called the National Weather Service Fort Worth Forecast Office to report the cell with its 40,000 foot top. Flight 191 was flying through it about a minute later, so... They had no chance to not go through it. Nah. This was verified by the heavy rain heard on the CVR at 6.05 and 20 seconds. Based on the CVR and the flight that was behind 191, there was nothing to visually obscure this storm. They knew they were flying into it. They knew there was rain, and they knew there was lightning. This was debunked pretty quickly. They didn't just blindly fly into a storm. Now for the weather analysis that I'm sure you're all waiting for, of the wind. This was performed by both Lockheed and NASA. Delta Flight 191 was flying with a 26-knot headwind at 754 feet above the ground while flying through the microburst first, first section, which gives you that increased headwind we've discussed in previous episodes. If you recall, EA-66 lost 20 knots in headwind. Pan Am 759 lost 40 knots in headwind. Delta 191 lost 72 knots. Oh, no. From going through that increased headwind, through the downdraft, then the tailwind. The wind field analysis also found that the microburst was 3.4 kilometers in diameter or just over two miles. As I discussed in EA66, a microburst occurs when hot air meets a storm front, so the hot air rises, the cold air falls, and you have a lovely little weather phenomenon. Well, at the bottom of the downdraft, the air hits the ground and goes outward in all directions, causing a mess of wind speeds and directions with no predictability. Based on the flight recorder data, the wind field analysis showed that the L-1011 went through the following in a span of 8 seconds. A 22-foot-per-second downdraft, a 16-foot-per-second updraft, a 43-foot-per-second downdraft, and an 18-foot-per-second updraft. That's horrifying. It was a roller coaster, needless to say. They were in the microburst for a total of 38 seconds. In that time, they lost 72 knots, went through six vertical wind reversals, and rolled right 20 degrees. So why didn't the airport know about the microburst? Don't they have the low-level wind shear alert system that we've discussed? In short, yes, they did. And it was active and working at the time. But the storm hadn't reached any of the sensors yet. The storm was 2,000 feet away from the closest sensor, the northeast sensor, when the plane impacted the ground. Oh. So fat lot of good it did. Yep. Which means zero. No. No good. Yeah. Nope. Now for the Central Weather Service Unit. This office is staffed by a meteorologist from the National Weather Service, as well as an assistant traffic manager serving as weather coordinator between the unit and the tower. This weather coordinator is not actually trained to observe or interpret the weather data processed by this unit, so no one was monitoring the Radar Remote Weather Detection System, or RRWDS, when the meteorologist took his 45-minute dinner break in the cafeteria. The meteorologist began his lunch at 525 after looking over the radar and finding no storms to be worried about, for the line of storms east of Dallas was well east and was stable. He came back after his lunch to find a catastrophe, as the plane had already crashed. When interviewed, he testified that if he had been there, he would have issued a CWA when the storm was reported as a Level 4 storm, but investigators found that the procedures involved in this process still would have led to the report reaching the tower after the flight had already crashed. When told this, the meteorologist then said that he would have phoned the tower directly, and the controllers would have issued an alert sometime between 6.03 and 6.05, maybe in time, but also maybe not, because the flight did enter the storm at 6.05. Yikes. In reviewing this whole notification process, though, NTSB investigators became increasingly frustrated at how long the whole process would have taken, and they recommended some actions based on this. I'm sure it's in the recommendations.
3: I'm surprised so. We live in Denver. If you've ever lived where we lived, you know it literally takes about 10 minutes for the weather to change here. If it's going to change, it'll change like that. Yep. And then it'll just start hailing out of nowhere.
0: That's a microburst, usually.
3: (sighs) Or it'll snow one day and be 80 the next day. It's happened before. Oh, yeah. So it kind of surprises me that the meteorologist was like, ah, the storms are fine.
1: Nothing's going to happen. And TSB investigators actually found that he was completely valid in his assessment.
0: Yep. He, at the time, he had no reason to believe that it was going to...
1: Increase. Because in...
0: because think about this. He took his lunch break... Dinner break. He, or he started his dinner break just before uh, the flight got the ATIS information that said winds were calm, visibility was 10 miles, clouds were scattered at 6,000, 12,000, and altimeter was 290.92.
1: The perfect weather, as we mentioned. That's yeah. when he took his lunch.
0: That's when he left for his lunch.
1: So you can't really blame the guy. He has to eat.
0: And then in well, the. One, why didn't they have
1: a backup?
0: That's what was in question. That was the only thing that was in question. They had somebody monitoring, but he wasn't trained.
1: Oh, good, because that's well, helpful. He was just a weather coordinator. If anything, most of his training was about air traffic control. He was the liaison between weather and air traffic control.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the one meteorology class I took in college mm-hmm. learned that weather is stupid hard to predict, it is unbelievably difficult to predict, especially microbursts. Yeah. And- You know, the thunderstorms that pop up in the afternoon in the summertime across the country, they're going to be there. You just don't know
0: exactly where or how they're going to form. Right, exactly.
3: So I understand that, but then my... my big problem with that is is if of course people have to take breaks i realize that you get hungry right you need to go eat especially you so yeah because i (laughs) get hungry and i get it like and it's it's a federal it's a federal thing like you have to take breaks etc there should have been an intermediary backup that knew how to read the weather well enough yes so Did that, that they up? didn't have that
1: time. Sort no of. No one there. It's but,
2: in the findings. Of course, if there was someone there, it still wouldn't have
0: made a difference. Right.
1: Well, that's ultimately, yes. I think, why they kind of glanced over the whole thing. It's like, even if he had been there, it might not have done anything. Right.
0: So we'll get into in the recommendations later what basically this spurred, because, yes, this was all very frustrating, much in the same way we're all talking about it. They actually had a thought on this, and they acted on it heavily. But we'll get to that in a bit. But to put in perspective how quickly this happened, so eight minutes, eight minutes is from the time it went from a level one storm, so basically almost non-existent, to a level four storm, basically a hurricane in a tiny little spot. And not only that, but from the time that the plane was on a perfectly stabilized approach to the time that it entered the storm to the time it crashed was 47 seconds.
1: That's crazy. Yep. That's ridiculously fast. And that's why microbursts are so dangerous.
0: They had 47 seconds to react to all the many different changes that happened, not being able to see anything, suddenly hitting the ground, hitting a highway, and ending up in a water tank.
1: Also, can we go back to the 72-knot drop? Yes, that's that's a lot. That's insane. That's no lift. You turn into a paperweight. Yeah. When I read that number, I was honestly surprised that they didn't just drop like a dead weight. They basically did. But they continued. Like I was surprised they didn't just plant in that field. Right. Because that's a lot of
3: lost lift.
1: That's if, like, that would be as if you're going 70 knots slower. What is 70 knots in miles per hour?
0: It's like 85 miles an hour. Yeah.
1: So there. It's like if you were on the highway, you go 85 miles an hour, I and mean, then you, you hit stop.
3: Yeah, you just... <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey... (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Okay, so findings. The NTSB investigators found that between 5.52pm and 6pm, the call-delta-radar-weather-echo position... For the north end of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, intensified from a VIP level 1 to a VIP level 4.
1: VIP stands for Video Integrator and Processor, which contours radio reflectivity into six VIP levels. VIP 1 is light precipitation. VIP 2 is light to moderate rain. 3 is moderate to heavy rain. 4 is heavy rain. 5 is very heavy rain hail possible. And 6 is very heavy rain and hail, large hail possible. Great. So it's actually like a... Media term, because it's about video processing.
0: Yes. Got it. Okay. They found that the absence of the Central Weather Service Unit meteorologist from his station between 5.25 p.m. and 6.10 p.m. and the failure of the CWSU procedures to require the position to be monitored by a qualified person during his absence precluded detection of the intensification of the weather echo north of the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Basically, they said what you said, which is that there wasn't somebody qualified in his place. To
1: have a backup while he was eating dinner. And it wasn't
0: in their procedures. It wasn't required for that weather station.
1: There are 20 of these units throughout the contiguous United States and one in Alaska. The Safety Board's investigation disclosed that some of these offices have obsolete and in some instances inadequate equipment to display and interpret satellite and radar information.
3: Then Hmm. why the heck do they exist?
0: They believed that having a meteorologist on site would probably help them. For funsies. Because yeah. of the Im- <laughs>
1: <for funsies. laughs> Because of the importance of these service units to aircraft safety, the safety board urges the FAA to ensure that they have the best possible data and display capability with which to ensure the safety of the national airspace system. And I think. There's... Yeah, I feel like if
3: they're so important, they should have updated equipment so they can actually help. Oh, and I think they
0: still have some of these. They're little red-white boxes with people in them.
3: Well, you know, just like
0: everything in aviation, it's super up-to-date and modern. Oh, yeah. Aviation has always been just dramatically behind the rest of society. Because it takes forever to certify things with the FAA.
1: The nation's 21 central weather service units are still in effect. Yep, that's what I They concentrate fully on aviation weather for the Air Route Traffic Control Center, producing specialized tailored forecasts and advisories of thunderstorms, turbulence, icing, and precipitation, affecting the national airspace system.
3: I think I've watched an air disasters where it was based just on these centers and how they look at how weather happens throughout the United States via radar and all that stuff and making sure stuff doesn't get to the point where they can't fly.
1: Uh, we will actually discuss the founding of these service units in an episode airing on November 3rd.
0: Okay. They found that during the final approach to one 7 Flight 191 flew into a very strong weather echo, level 4, located north of the field. This was a thunderstorm with with heavy rain showers. Okay, duh. Yes. We know that. Thank you. They found that the thunderstorms produced an outflow containing a microburst. The microburst was about twelve thousand feet north of the approach end of 17 left, and about one thousand feet west of the center line, and and the approach path of 191. Obviously. They found that the microburst diameter was about 3.4 kilometers the horizontal wind shear across the microburst was at least 73 knots and a maximum updraft of 25 feet per second and a maximum downdraft of 49 feet per second.
1: So that's a little over two miles for those of the few of the world.
0: Yes. Anyways, I thought it was crazy, the 49 foot per second downdraft. That's crazy. They're losing 50 feet per second. So they were all of a sudden in a 3,000 foot per minute descent. That's yikes. Nice. When they're only like 500 feet above the ground.
3: Yeah, yikes.
0: No wonder they hit the ground. Nah. they found that there were six distinct reversals of vertical and v- of vertical wind components. This presence showed that there were vortices on the outer edges of, uh, on the outer edges of the microburst
1: That's what caused that roller coaster I talked about.
0: Yes, they found that flight one ninety one entered the microburst at the southern end of the microburst. They found that the first officer successfully transited the first part of the microburst. By putting the plane in a 15 degrees nose-up attitude and increasing the thrust to nearly full throttle.
3: Which we talked about in the previous episode, which is really what you should do. Because you're losing so much lift on the wings.
0: But you have to be ahead of what was happening. And And they were not. They were not. They find that at 6.05 p.m. and 35 seconds, 17 seconds before initial impact, the plane encountered rapid reversals in winds from all directions, causing the stick shaker to activate... The first officer exerted a 20 to 25 pounds of force on the control column in response. They found that the flight director was placed in the takeoff go-around mode, or togo mode, during initiation of the missed approach, seven seconds before initial touchdown. This mode does not provide enough pitch attitude reference to correct for heavy wind shear correction, but but it could not be determined if the first officer was trying to follow the flight director or if he was doing his own movements. Okay. So in other words, the flight director gives you input on your attitude gauges about your your speed, your altitude, you know, where you are, and it's supposed to give you literally guidance on how to fly the airplane. And so when they switched it to toga mode, it puts the airplane in a nose up attitude, but they don't think it was enough for to it to get out, out of there. They yeah. know it wasn't.
1: Which we discussed in the last episode that it has to be an uncomfortable pitch. Right. To get out of that situation.
0: Right. So, here's an interesting one that follows that. They found that the first officer was exerting the 20 to 25 pounds of force when the stick shaker activated momentarily, so he began to release the back pressure on the yoke, which made ground contact inevitable.
1: Because he was a good pilot and knew that a stick shaker meant you should probably put the nose down.
0: He was trained, basically, as a reaction that when the stick shaker goes off, you start letting the nose down to bring... Then I was down for speed,
3: and then there but was they were, but there wasn't enough.
0: <clears throat> but that room. wasn't the case in this this case. It was it was the bad to release that pressure.
3: <laughs> Great, it was I know. just bad. Well, and there there was no way for them to know that.
0: No, he was doing what he was taught to do automatically, and I don't blame him.
3: He was just trying to be a good pilot, right. and it ended up not helping in this case. Right.
0: They found that flight one ninety one touched down softly and nearly avoided ground contact altogether, initially. They found that the air traffic control speed adjustment procedures were not causal to the crash, so in other words, every time they asked them to slow down, they found that the 150 knots wasn't causal to the crash. They found that the three nautical mile separation was not maintained between Flight 91 and the preceding Learjet, but this did not have an effect on the crash. They found that air traffic control had provided Flight 191 with all weather info available to them, They found that several flight crews saw the lightning in the storm, but did not report this to air traffic control. That's a problem. Yeah. They found that air traffic control noticed the lightning in the storm about or just after flight 191 entered the microburst and failed to report this to them. And therefore, however, was not causal to the crash because there was nothing they could have done at that point. And the lightning didn't have anything to do with it, really. Though it might have helped them make a decision not to go through it. They found that the flight crew had sufficient info to determine the weather on their approach path. So with everything that was there, they could, and what they could see, they had enough to determine what to do. They found that the north side of the thunderstorm was not masked by any clouds. They pointed this out because they wanted to say, basically, they could see the storm. There was nothing between them and the storm.
1: That's why I specifically mentioned that earlier, too.
0: Yes. So, it was right there, it was clear. But I think the one driving factor is they were less than a minute behind the landing Learjet, and the Learjet landed.
1: I would also like to mention that that Learjet had problems landing.
0: Yes, they had to fight the wind. He, However...
1: As a small plane, he ate up the entire runway. Yeah,
0: the Learjet had to use the whole of 1-7 left at Dallas-Fort Worth in order to land. That said, also, he did have a higher altitude and a higher speed going through it than the, the L-1011 had for its margin.
1: That's one of the reasons he made it. Yes. And... If the L-1011 had done the same thing, would they have overrun the runway?
0: Right. And within that minute, the storm probably got worse in that specific spot.
1: Yep. But if they overran the runway,
3: it probably would have been less... Serious. Well, serious and probably less people would have died.
0: They find that the captain's decision to continue beneath the thunderstorm did not comply with Delta's weather avoidance procedures. However, the avoidance procedure did not specifically address thunderstorm avoidance in terminal areas. This one's kind of weird because basically he decided to fly their route underneath some of the overhangs of the storms. And while they were, well in the procedures it says not to do that, it's specifically talking about routing. And it doesn't say anything about doing that in terminal areas or on approaches. They found that after the first part of the storm, the engine thrust, which had already been increased, was then reduced. And the plane had stabilized on the glide slope momentarily at 550 feet above ground level. The captain had evidently believed that they had flown through the worst of it, so the approach was continued. So there was a moment where they actually smoothed out after the initial bumps and crap. And once they smoothed out, then they managed to think they were back on the glide slope nice and smooth, would get through the rest of it, and then all of a sudden, you know.
3: Not the case. Yeah.
0: It all went downhill.
3: Quite literally.
0: Yes. They found that Delta had not given specific guidance or training on limits of airplane performance and control during low-level wind shear encounters that would dictate the execution of a missed approach. So this one's a little specific, but they're saying that Delta doesn't have any specific training or procedures in place for you encounter low-level wind shear. At what point do you say, this is too much, I'm going around? They don't have a specific, like, these are the signs, go around. They have make your best judgment, basically.
3: And then go around. Yes. Which they did try to do, but they did too late.
0: Yes. Way too late. They found that although the captain had not expressed his decision to execute a missed approach until he called for selection of the toga mode on the flight director seven seconds before impact, max engine thrust had already been applied before the airplane's rapid descent below the glide slope. So the airplane was already dropping like a rock, thrust was already full, and the captain then selected Togan, the flight director, and that was the way he basically called out a missed approach because he never said missed approach.
3: Which that's a, an issue, but, but they were in fighting this an airplane, case, yeah.
0: They were fighting an airplane. That was only seven seconds before impact, so he was probably intending to say go around. But, but you know,
3: never got the chance.
0: Yeah. They had already here's the thing. They don't argue that they were doing a missed approach. And there was no doubt that they were attempting to do it, basically, because they had already put the airplane in every set of the situation they needed to go around. But it was way too late. They found that the accident was not survivable for people seated forward of row 40, though eight passengers forward of row 40 survived. The accident was survivable rear of row 40, mainly to the passengers in the middle and the right rows of seats.
3: Which are the people who ended up surviving from back there.
0: Yep. And they found that despite notification and coordination difficulties, the emergency response was quick enough to aid in the survival of as many people as possible. And, weirdly enough, they point out this a lot. Like, they they had some serious problems with the way emergency coordination was handled, apparently. Because some really big things changed from this. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, Emergency-wise? Yes. That's all, right. all I've got for findings. Okay.
1: The probable cause, verbatim... The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident were the flight crew's decision to initiate and continue the approach into a cumulonimbus cloud, which they observed to contain visible lightning, the lack of specific guidelines, procedures, and training for avoiding and escaping from low-altitude wind shear, and the lack of definitive, real-time wind shear hazard information. This resulted in the aircraft's encounter at low altitude with a microburst-induced severe wind shear from a rapidly developing thunderstorm located on the final approach course.
0: Yeah. That um, I do think it's interesting. I changed it a few times because they call it the low low altitude wind shear when the standard term these days is low, low level. level low level wind shear. And I think it's because it it's a much rolls off the tongue well, better. rolls off the tongue easier and it flows faster in the event that air traffic control and it's easier to remember in the Also,
1: event. the alert system's always been called low level. Wind shear alert system. Yeah. Even yep. in this report, they call it that, so I don't know why they decided to use low altitude. Because they wanted to be fancy.
2: My guess is nothing
0: was completely standardized.
3: Probably not. I mean, this is 1985. So. Right,
0: right. They were still very much studying wind shear, and we'll get into that in a minute. But to start the recommendations, I'm going to start with there was two sections in the recommendations. The first one was all about this wind shear thing, and it was a huge section actually. And the second part was all the other recommendations. So we're going to read out the other recommendations first in the second section and then we'll go into this wind shear portion. They recommended that in regard to restraint systems for cabin crew restraints at cabin crew stations that they issue an advisory circular for guidance on the limits of wear and damage to restraint system webbing material that would necessitate the replacement of worn or damaged webbing.
3: Where's webbing, that? like on the flight attendant seats?
0: Exactly. So, this one starts a whole nother problem that existed, and that is that the first officer restraints weren't keeping the or the the cabin crew's restraints weren't keeping the cabin crew in their seats. Because cabin crew
1: like flight attendants? All
0: the flight attendants. Because their the webbing, the webbing material that the seat belts were made of were getting worn and then just breaking when they went under impact.
3: Great. That's yep. Interesting, because if you've ever seen flight attendants buckle themselves in, Mm -hmm. they have like a harness. Yeah, it's a full-on harness. Now, so I'm assuming that changed Uh, from the webbing, or the the harness was made out of webbing?
0: Mostly the material changed, but we'll get into this more here. So they recommended reviewing and requiring improvements to Delta's quality control procedures regarding inspections and replacement of restraint systems. They recommended issuing maintenance alert bulletins that cite problems with the L-1011 Cabin Crew Restraint Systems and require principal maintenance inspectors to emphasize to operators the requirements and guidance for periodic inspections of uh, flight attendant restraints. They recommended issuing an AD to correct the design deficiency of the Heath Tecna's jump seats that permit the seatbelt webbing to chafe against the seat pan retracting spring.
3: Oh, well, that's not good. That's definitely going to cut it. That's why eventually. they were worn.
0: That's why they were worn. Because they were rubbing against that
3: the metal. And guess what? Cloth against metal? Metal's going to win eventually. Generally, yep,
0: eventually. So it, it turned out they all just started to snap.
3: On normal flights, it wouldn't be a big issue. But when you get into something like this, where there's an accident, that could literally be life or death. Yep. So they have a four part four point harness now, mm-hmm. and we've seen those before. Like I've seen those when we've traveled with yeah. Frontier and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: My dad's friend was traveling in Russia. He got on the airplane, and the seatbelt was missing the buckle
3: part.
1: Oh! Nice. So
2: the flight attendants told him to tie it.
1: Oh no.
3: <laughs> no! I would get up and walk off that
0: flight. No offense to our Russian oh. friends, but you should know your aviation. Safety is not think, there. I don't think this is probably like Russian back in friends. the 70s. I think
1: the flight attendant will. So if there's a broken flight attendant seatbelt, the flight attendant will be assigned a passenger seat as close to the exit as possible. If the flight is completely full, a passenger will be denied boarding to accommodate. Mm-hmm. That's yep. interesting. Yeah,
0: because they have to have a certain
1: number of pilots crew. have a five point harness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That must be uncomfortable for yes. the men. It's not it would too be bad incredibly uncomfortable yeah. if you
3: like. Yes, that... Had to get jostled forward.
0: Uh, that Yes, yes, you are correct. Basically, the retracting spring on this was just wearing through the...
3: The material, material that the harness was made out of.
0: So now for this emergency thing. and They found, or they recommended in regards to emergency response, that they revise disaster response notification procedures to provide for timely and effective notification of mutual aid agencies whose assistance is needed... And revised procedures for coordinating with local hospitals on mass casualty events with timely information regarding estimated number of victims, injury categories, destinations, and arrival times. Basically, a lot of this is to say that they didn't do a very good job coordinating between emergency response groups and then the hospitals and how many people were hurt, how badly they were, they were hurt, like triaged and such. So, an interesting thing came from this, because the next one is unbelievably important. They recommended conducting full-scale demonstrations at Dallas every two years. Further, they recommended to the FAA to require certificated airports to demonstrate full-scale disaster response every two years. That exists.
1: I I mean, it's a good thing.
0: That is absolutely in place now. They do have to do full-scale demonstrations of response. Or a disaster now.
3: So was th- I'm assuming right because this is 1985. Mm-hmm. There was a fire station at the end of the runway.
0: There was probably one nearby. Yes.
3: Did they not get to the? Cr- I mean, they crashed pretty close to the runway. They
0: got there relatively quick, even Actually, though they. I think they, in
1: the air disasters episode, it said less than a minute.
0: Yes, even though they weren't notified in that amount of time
1: oh that's a problem
0: that's the problem they were saying that the notification didn't go out quick enough and that coordination from there on in with all the groups that were there to rescue wasn't good
3: oh so coordination coordination coordination
0: yes and they recommended making this two year uh this every two year full-scale disaster response training being part of the certification of airports and the annual certification qualification
3: which makes sense Yep. You want everybody to be able to be on the same page when a disaster hits.
0: Right. So then let's talk about the biggest part of this. And that is the wind shear recommendations, which wasn't really a recommendation. It was more a very large section of this report. It was like four pages or something like that, which normally recommendations only take up about a page or two. This alone was four pages of how they just explain the history, including the disasters we have covered in the last two episodes about wind shear,
1: As well as a whole host of others.
0: Yes, as well as a whole host of others.
1: Including for all those who care, one at Stapleton.
0: Yep, including one at Stapleton here in Denver. So they found it unbelievably important to bring up all these previous accidents and the previous recommendations made in those reports and just basically reiterate, this is a big problem. And because this was a bigger airplane that has a really good safety record... It was something that they felt needed to be really, really worked on in aviation, and they did. The FAA and NASA went on to do a massive amount of research into this, so much so that they actually made a 737 to specifically fly into microbursts.
3: Wait, is that the one we saw when we went to the Seattle flight, the Boeing Museum of Flight. If you've ever seen the one we're talking about, and I think we posted pictures of it, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. There was a 737 that had NASA on the side that clearly NASA had used for something. It didn't, as far as I remember, I don't remember it saying anything of what it was used for. Yep. But it doesn't surprise me that they would just get an airplane and use it (laughs) for research.
1: So what they did is they implemented three different weather detection systems on this 737. They implemented a Doppler radar inside the nose, so like in the nose cone area, it flipped open, and they put in a Doppler. They used a laser sensor, and they used an infrared sensor, and then they would have a spotter on the ground basically say, Look, there's a microburst over there. Go fly into it. Right. Oh, that's great. That would be absolutely terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying.
0: No, you're right. It is the one at the museum.
1: Ha ha! See? We've seen it. It might be on our Instagram. So in any case... They basically flew towards these microbursts and tried to figure out which of the three systems did the best job at detecting an impending microburst that they already knew was ahead, but they wanted to see which system picked it up consistently. And the one that did pick it up consistently was the Doppler radar, which was actually a system that was already implemented by the JAWS program at Stapleton. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. And had a 98% efficiency in detecting microbursts.
0: So the biggest thing about this is that they wanted to not just implement this new radar system, but they wanted to—they wanted it to be airborne on the airplane. Most importantly of all, they wanted it something that the airplane could pick up reliably without needing somebody else outside of the airplane to notify them of. Because obviously they weren't going to get enough... They weren't going to get these notifications in a timely enough manner from these meteorologists on the ground or from the tower or from the low-level wind shear alert systems. So instead... They wanted something in the airplane that would show them the storm ahead of them and what that looked like that was powerful enough to tell them, this is a microburst.
1: And you're flying into it.
0: Don't fly into it. And they determined that the nose cone-based radar system that they had built was what would do that. And it is now completely standard. Now we have that big plate-looking radar system in there because NASA did all this research. So... The biggest thing that really came from this was that they wanted an aircraft-based system. Now, that said, they went through all this trouble and these, you know, all the recommendations in here really were what prompted that research and this was a big accident, really big one. A lot of people that were alive then really know this one. And because of that, you know, they this big research happened and a lot changed in aviation. Now, that's not to say that the problem was completely fixed since we have one more episode.
3: or i guess dun
1: dun dun
0: (laughs) pick pick your
1: ending (laughs) yeah if you guys want to see pictures of that of the nasa 737 you can look at our instagram from our post from the boeing museum of flight which was on february 8th i'm sure it's on facebook too so probably facebook or instagram
3: it's the very last picture because it was the very last. It's at the back corner of the plane exhibit, outside plane exhibit. Mm-hmm. The front is literally the Concorde. The back is the 737 that has NASA on it. So, Yep. And a lot of the planes you can go into, that is the one you cannot go into. One of the ones you cannot go in and see the inside. And
0: that's mostly because I'm pretty sure NASA left all their crap in
3: Yeah, they probably <laughs> were just like, ah, we don't need it anymore. Just like take it there and just leave it. Maybe they'll use it again someday. I doubt it. I'm being hopeful. (laughs) I think they removed the actual engines. It would would take
0: a lot of work to restore that airplane. Yeah. Anyways. So that's it. That's all we got for this week's episode. But there's definitely more on this.
1: And join us next week to hear how nothing is solved yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not nothing. We've definitely solved a lot through this. But it turns out it's still a problem. Okay. Cool.
1: And Brendan will give us a talk.
0: Thanks for being here. Hopefully next week you can join us.
3: Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening. Be smart. Be healthy. Hashtag wear a mask. Enjoy the rest of your week. We will... Uh... I, I always want to say see you. We'll... Catch you
1: next time. Ah, catch that's a good one. We'll
3: catch you next time.
1: <laughs> Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at hardlandingspod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review
3: on whatever platform you're using to listen.
0: If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
3: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy.
0: Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora.
3: Catch you next time.